After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took him with two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the sacrificial knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father. And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Abraham went back to his young men and they got up and went together to Beersheba and Abraham settled in Beersheba. Thanks, Izzy. Well, good to see you along tonight. My name's Ross. I'm part of the team here at Janali, and it's great to be uh, with you and in God's Word. Like always, when we come to the Bible, uh, we need to pray that God would help us understand it and see what it means for our lives. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into Genesis uh, 22. Why don't you pray with me? Our Father God, we pray that you help us to understand your word tonight. Give us clarity, give us clear minds, give us the opportunity and the ability to see what you have to say. Lord, we pray that your spirit takes this word and dives it deep into our hearts. We pray all of these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, friends, Genesis 22 is a heck of a story, isn't it? It's one of those stories that uh, anyone who has ever thought a thought has thought something about. You read it and you just start thinking. Everyone from Richard Dawkins to Bob Dylan has had something to say 
about Genesis 22. And I wonder what you thought as you heard that story read out then. I wonder what kind of emotions, questions, feelings ran through your head. And in fact, I want us to to dwell on that just for a second. I want us to start tonight by sharing with each other what was your initial reaction to Genesis 22, to that story. So take a minute, turn to the person next to you and just share your first initial reaction. What did you think? Go for it. Okay, I think that's, that's long enough for like first hot takes. Let me call you back. If you're having a great deep and meaningful, we can pick it up later. It's an interesting story, isn't it? And maybe as you were sharing then, you were sharing something that that story made you feel. Maybe as you first heard uh, that story, you had feelings of maybe shock, maybe horror, maybe outrage, maybe grief. Or maybe you felt something on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, weirdly. Maybe you kind of felt a sense of like inspiration, maybe awe, maybe even adoration. Or maybe you felt a weird jumble of different, almost contrasting emotions all at once, like only a story in the Bible can make you feel. Maybe it wasn't a feeling so much. Maybe you had a question that came to mind. Maybe a question of motivation. Maybe you thought, what could drive a man to be willing to do something like that? Or maybe more of an ethical question. What kind of God would ask a man to sacrifice his son? Or maybe a question of the details in the story. Where is Moriah? Why is that significant? Or why would someone saddle a donkey first before cutting up wood? Like, why? What's going on with that? Questions, feelings, this passage really raises lots of things for us, doesn't it? And tonight, uh, my goal is pretty simple, actually, as we uh, spend time looking at this passage. I want to try and move us from maybe an initial feeling of something like shock and outrage to something more like adoration. You see, in life we often have initial reactions, don't we, to things? But they're usually and often shouldn't be our final and settled reaction. I see this all the time with my kids. Uh, with our kids, we try to give them the same food that we're eating at dinner. Tonight we did it with, uh, with dumplings, we had some dumplings, and uh, we gave our kids some dumplings. But often our kids' initial reaction to the food that we're eating is something like disgust or horror or even bordering on outrage. They don't want to eat it, right? To their little brains, that just seems terrible. And my wife, Christy, she has a little saying for them. She says, give your taste buds a chance. Give your taste buds a chance. And tonight, I want to give our brains and our hearts a chance to see what we might find in this story. We often live in a kind of rage culture, a cancel culture, where our initial reaction is our dominant and primary reaction. And I get that. But I want to encourage us tonight just to kind of cool our jets a little bit. I want us to read the story and just settle for a second to see what there is to see here. Because I think there's something amazing in this story, despite the horrific nature of the tale. You see, this story is an odd story in many ways. It's the kind of story that looks like it's one thing at the beginning, but the more you look at it, 
you realize it's something completely different by the end. We have these kind of experiences all the time, don't we? When something looks like something at the start, but then turns out to be something different. I often have this experience at Bunnings. I'm a sucker for like a seedling tray sale at Bunnings. Like they're like 50 cent seedling. It's great. It's a bargain. But I tell you what, they are risky. That's like Russian roulette. Because you never actually know if what's on the outside of the little tag is really what's in the seedling. So often I've gone to plant beans and like 12 weeks later I've got capsicums. And uh, that's kind of fun. But what I thought it was at the start is not what it turned out to be at the end. And the same goes with this story. It looks like a pretty horrific tale about Abraham and Isaac. But actually it's about much, much, much more. It has something to do with you. It has something to do with me. It has something to do with every person that's ever lived. And so let's have a look at what it has to say. And I want to do something a little bit different tonight in this talk. What I want to do is kind of just slow us down and walk back through the passage just really slowly and just notice some stuff, just pull things out, almost like a guided tour uh, of the passage because almost every single line in this story has something remarkable for us to see. And rather than just react to a couple of shocking sentences, I want us to pour over it to notice the detail and see the goodness there. Ready to come with me? Let's do it. Keep your Bibles open if you close them. That was a mistake. Open them back up. Genesis 22. Have a look at the first three words. After these things. Whenever the Bible says that, particularly Genesis, after these things, what we know is that something that's happened right before is really, 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 really important to understanding what's about to happen. So what happened right before? Well, in Genesis chapter 21, finally, after years and years and years of waiting... Against the odds, finally, Abraham and Sarah, they have a child. And they name him Isaac. All of a sudden, the promise comes true. You can imagine their hearts just swell with joy. And really importantly, verse 12, God says that the family line, the offspring, will come through Isaac. So Isaac is the key to all of the promises being fulfilled. People call him the son of promise. And can you imagine the significance that Isaac now has in his father's eyes and Sarah's eyes? All of a sudden, Isaac is, he's everything. You know, parents who kind of live out their dreams through their kids, this is like that, but on steroids, right? All of God's promises are now all about this kid. And so you can imagine that for Abraham, he's totally wrapped up. And there's a big threat here, isn't there? Because what could slowly but surely happen is that Abraham begins to trust in Isaac and put his hope in Isaac and find his security and salvation in Isaac instead of God. So we've got a threat, actually, right at the start in Abraham's heart. And so what is God going to do about it? Well, the next three words let us in on that. God tested Abraham. Now, interestingly, this is a comment by the narrator, okay? And that's really important because Abraham does not know that this is a test, but we do. And so as we read it and interpret it and try to figure out what does it mean for you and me, we have to remember this is a test, okay? This is not some sick prank that God is playing on Abraham. This is not a reflection of the true desires of God's heart. This is a test, 
and tests in the Bible are designed for our good. They're designed to grow us and shape us and mould us, even if they don't feel like it. So this is a test. And I tell you what, it's kind of the worst test you could almost imagine, isn't it? Look at the nature of the test with me again. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. That is a truly horrific ask, isn't it? I don't even really want you to imagine that. This is the worst possible test I think a parent could almost ever be asked to do. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him up as a burnt offering. And, uh, and you know what a burnt offering is in the Bible? A burnt offering is not just about burning something. Before you do a burnt offering, you might wonder why the knife comes up later. Because literally you would cut the burnt offering into small pieces before you burn it. This is horrific. It's horrific. But interestingly, this passage here, it mirrors really clearly Genesis chapter 12. Remember right at the start, Genesis 12, God says, go, and then he gives him a threefold description of all that he has to give up. Here he does the same thing. He says, go, and he gives him a threefold description of what he has to give up. And what we're meant to notice is that Abraham's journey with God, it starts with a test, Genesis 12, and it ends with a test. This is the final test to eliminate the threat and to make sure that God's promises come true. So what does Abraham do? What does he do? Well, have a look. Verse 5. So Abraham got up early in the morning. As if not to delay at all. He gets up and he just goes for it. Maybe he knew that if he tallied, he'd talk himself out of it. So he gets up and he goes. And then I love the details in this section because the story just slows right down in pace and you start getting all these details. And what you get is Abraham doing these jobs. And that's so interesting because here he's doing jobs that he should not be doing. He's doing the jobs of the servants. It's as if he's busying himself. Do you ever busy yourself? When things are on our mind, when things are totally kind of turning us around on the inside, we often just start doing stuff. That's what Abraham does. He's overwhelmed with the grief, the pain, the request, and so he starts acting. But as he starts doing stuff, his brain is obviously just so filled to the brim that he gets things in the wrong order. He saddles the donkey... And then he decides to cut the wood. That'd be like buckling your kids into the car before you packed the boot for the family holiday. Okay? He gets everything the wrong way round. Here is a man who is overcome with what is being asked of him. But at the same time, from the very beginning, there's hope in the story. Did you notice it? See, they leave and after three days, they finally get close to Moriah. And Moriah in the Bible, we learn in two chronicles, is the place where Jerusalem will one day be built. The place where God's city Zion will come. Store that away in the back of your brain. That's really important for later. So they come close. They stop. Abraham, he goes down and he talks to the two servants. And look at what he says in verse 5. Stay here with the donkey 
the boy and I will go over there to worship, then we'll come back to you. We'll come back to you. He doesn't say, I'll come back. From the very beginning of the story, Abraham thinks, knows, has confidence that somehow, doesn't know how, him and Isaac will return. You see the hope right there from the beginning that God will provide. After saying that, Abraham puts wood on his son Isaac's back. Isaac at this point was probably 16 years old, something like that. And Abraham himself, he takes the knife and the fire. And I love this little detail because you notice there that he takes the dangerous things right till the very end. You see the fatherly heart of Abraham and the love that he has for his son. And so they set out. They go up towards the place that will one day be Jerusalem. And you can kind of picture the scene in your head, can't you? Abraham is probably overcome with grief at this point. You can imagine the tears rolling down his face. He has confidence on one hand, but I'm sure he's overcome with questions of what if, what do I have to do, what's coming next. And then his son Isaac, walking next to him, asks him the question that you can imagine he never wanted him to ask. He says, Father. And imagine even that word would have pierced Abraham. Father, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And what does Abraham say? This is so important. Have a look at what he says. Verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb. Again, you see the hope, the confidence, the trust. He doesn't know how, he doesn't know what, but he knows that God will provide. And so father and son, the two, they walk up together. And you notice in the story how laboured the language of father and son is? It just keeps on repeating it. it. It feels almost unnecessary. And whenever something feels unnecessary in the Bible, it's very necessary. Okay, those details are there for us to see. So again, store that one in the back of your brain. Jerusalem, father and son. So they go up together. Finally, they get there and uh, Abraham binds his son Isaac and he lays him on the altar. And remember, Isaac, he's not a small child of five or six. He's 16 years old and his dad is well over 100. Isaac is bound willingly. He could have fought him off for sure, but he doesn't. He lays down on the altar. And then Abraham readies himself to do the thing that is beyond imagining. He takes out the knife. He holds it high above his head. And then a voice interrupts the scene. Abraham, Abraham. And the Lord intervenes. And at this exact moment, Abraham learns something that we knew from the very beginning. He learns that this is a test. He learns that God never intended for his son to die that day. And we know that because the rest of the Old Testament shows so clearly that God hates human sacrifice. God was doing something else through this story. And then Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught in a thicket. And I love that description, a ram caught in a thicket. People sometimes get confused. Why was it a lamb earlier and a ram now? 
They're both sheep, so don't overthink it, okay? Both sheep. Um, but I think probably, actually, just to give you a 10-second, I shouldn't take too long on this, uh, I like the idea that there's a sense, probably, that Abraham had some idea of what God was going to do, but he didn't know fully. And even here, you see, he has confidence, but he still doesn't know the exact answers until it comes true. So he sees this ram caught in the thicket. And what does he do? Well, he takes the ram and he sacrifices it on the altar. And all of a sudden, his son can go free. A substitute dies in the place of the son. And the tension in the narrative just dissolves into your hand. And what are we left with? We have Abraham. What does he do? How does he interpret this whole story? Verse 14, have a look again. He says, And Abraham named that place, The Lord will provide. And so, from the moment that happened to the moment this book was read and throughout the history of God's people, whenever they came to that place outside the walls of Jerusalem, what did they say? The Lord will provide. People remembered the place where God provided for his people. So what's the point of this story? As we notice our way and as we kind of see all the different details, what's the point? Well, the point is exactly what Abraham says in verse 14. This story is meant to remind us something about God. That God is the God who provides. That's his nature. That's the beating heart of this whole story. God is the God who provides. And what's really important is we notice that God is the hero of this story. It's so tempting to make Abraham the hero of the story, isn't it? He has this obedience, he has this drivenness, this unbelievable faith and trust, but he's not the hero of the story. No, God is the hero of this story. And his ability to show and give us what we truly need in our most difficult moments That's what's beautifully on display. God is the God who provides what we truly need. But you know what's wonderful? It doesn't just tell us something general about God. God is sovereign. God provides. No, no, no. It tells us something particular, specifically, about how he does it. And I love this about this story. You see, what's going on in this story is that Abraham is being given an opportunity to walk in the shoes of God. He's being invited in, giving a special place and a special insight that no one else gets. See, Abraham saw something that day on the mountain. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 8. We have a quote from John 8. Here's what it says. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day. He saw it and he rejoiced. Jesus is telling us here that Abraham got an insight into God's experience. He got an insight into how God would fulfill his promises. He got a unique position to see that God would solve the problem of sin and fulfill his promises through the death, through the sacrifice, through the substitution Of his son. Now he would have had no idea that his name was Jesus, but he saw the pattern and he knew the way. And this is amazing, I think, for us, because at first, what we see happen to Abraham, we kind of sit back and think, 
What a terrible, heart-wrenching, horrific thing to go through. But there's another side to it, isn't there? For Abraham, he gets a unique opportunity to walk in God's shoes, to see things from God's perspective, to be drawn closer to the creator and maker and judge of the world, and to see things that no one else has ever seen. Abraham saw something that day. And maybe as you read this story and heard me pick out some details, you saw something as well. Maybe with each passing detail, you were thinking of another father and another son. You were thinking of a father who had one son, his only son, his beloved son, who was willing to give him up for us. You were thinking of that son who walked up a hill outside Jerusalem to a place called Golgotha with a cross, a heavy load of wood on his back. And as he prepared to do that, you remembered in the back of your mind the question that he asked his father, is there any other way? And that same son willingly went to that cross, was strung up there, and he hung there. And as he hung there, waiting to be die, to die, there was no ram caught in a thicket. See, there's all these things that match, but there's one that doesn't. When it comes to Jesus, there is no substitute because he is the Lamb of God. He is the substitute for us. And as he hung there on the cross, he cried out to his father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine that moment for God the Father as he watched his son hang on a cross, innocent, hung there for our sins, kept there by our sin? Can you imagine how much the father wants to take his son down? Can you imagine how much he wants to cry back out and tell him that he loves him? Can you imagine how much he might want to scrap the whole plan, but he doesn't? He's completely and utterly silent. And that silence is crushing. But the son had to die for you, for me, and for the many. But that death achieved something remarkable. It achieved what we truly need, the forgiveness of sins. So easy in our lives to think our truest needs are other things, isn't it? I think I get trapped in this thought all the time. But actually what the Bible reminds us time and time again is that the wages of sin is death, and each and every one of us is laid down by those sins. And without God's forgiveness... None of the promises matter because we need it more than we need anything else. And Jesus achieved that for us on the cross. As we read this story, we know it's pointing forward to another story, the story of God the Father and Jesus the Son who provides what we truly need. And that freedom, that forgiveness, is a glorious gift for you and for me and for the many. But the question that remains is, what does this actually mean for our lives? How do we take this into our lives in 2023 here in the Sutherland Shire? What is God trying to teach us tonight? And I think this passage is often misunderstood 
because often we get one critical factor wrong. And I want to show you that uh, by reading to you a quote by a lady called Nancy Guthrie. And I think this is an excellent quote. It's a bit long, but stay with it because it's worth it. She says, Why would God ask Abraham to offer his son as a sacrifice? Is God trying to teach us that we should be willing to sacrifice what is most precious to us? No. This story is not recorded to inspire sacrifice to God. Instead, it paints in vivid colours the sacrifice of God. The point of this story is not to convince you to give up what is most precious to you, but rather to prepare you to take in the magnitude of the gift when you see that God was willing to sacrifice what was most precious to him, his own beloved son, for you. Isn't that helpful? See, the problem is when we read this story, we often want to place ourselves in the shoes of Abraham. We want to think, I'm Abraham. You're not Abraham. That's ridiculous. You're not Isaac either. If we're anyone in this story, we're like the two servants who wait at the bottom of the hill. We're like the two servants who get a word that he's going, but he'll return. We're like the two women who wait at the foot of the cross as their saviour is hung up, witnessing his death. We're like those same two women who wait for three days for Jesus' words to come true, that he'll come back, and he does. Friends, we're witnesses to God's great act of provision. We are not called to sacrifice the things that are most precious to us. That's not the point of this passage for you and for me. Now, the point is to marvel, to witness God's almighty provision for us. But we don't merely witness it from afar. We benefit as well, don't we? That great gift, that great offer of forgiveness, it's yours, it's mine. And that forgiveness brings us freedom, brings us security, brings us hope. See, God is the God who provides. He provided then, he's providing right now, and he'll provide all the way through to eternity. And he gives us what we truly and ultimately need in Jesus. Jesus is the key. Now, there's one kind of remaining thing, one outstanding idea in this passage, and it's that there's this whole question of trials. And I don't want to spend too long on this now, but there is this question of, will we face trials like Abraham did? And I'm going to spend a few minutes just touching on this, and I want to say a few things. Number one, we will endure trials. That is 100% consistent with what we read in the New Testament and the lived experience of Christians ever since Jesus. We are not immune from suffering just because we follow Jesus. In fact, because we follow Jesus, we will suffer. But in saying that, no one will ever be asked to endure the same kind of trial as Abraham. That was a unique, one-time thing in salvation history. That is never something that God would ask someone to do today in his world. But we will suffer. There's all sorts of passages in the New Testament that help us think about trials. We've got a quote uh, from 1 Peter 4. It's going to come up on the screen behind me. Here's what Peter says. I find this helpful. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you participate 
in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. I find this such a helpful passage and there's two things I want to show you in this. The first one is I love the idea that uh, suffering or trials, they shouldn't be strange to us. Often when we go through something hard, we think, what's going on for me? Why am I suffering? That's the complete opposite of what the New Testament says. The New Testament says, if everything's always all okay, that's when you should be concerned. Okay, that's when you should be concerned. It's not something strange. Why is it not something strange? Because of the underlined bit. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Who is Jesus? He's the suffering servant. His life was dominated, dictated by putting on uh, trouble and trial at almost every turn. If we follow Jesus, we follow him into eternal life, into the good life, but that good life has a lot of challenge along the way. But here's what I love about God. With God, suffering, trials, they're never, ever wasted. That's the beauty. That's what we read in the New Testament. Our trials, our suffering, it's never wasted. And there's three things, at least three, that God is doing in trials and suffering. The first one, God is drawing us closer to Jesus. Sufferings create intimacy with him. I'm sure you've had this experience at some point in your life. When you go through hard things, usually what it does is it draws you closer to Jesus. It makes you want to pray more. That's what happens in my life. But it's not just intimacy, it also shapes us, it changes us, it reworks our heart to make us more like Jesus. It's one of the ways that God grows us and sanctifies us, just a really painful way. Number three, it directs us home to Jesus, it directs us home to heaven. Sufferings and trials, they remind us that this world is not our home. Goodness me, living in a place like this with so many good things, we can think this is heaven can't we? How deadly that is for our hearts. But trials remind us that this world is not our final destination. Now, I don't know the trials that are present in your life right now, and I do want to say that these things, they don't sometimes happen instantly, okay? So if you're going through a trial and you don't feel like you're more close to Jesus, or you don't feel like Jesus is shaping you to be more like him, and you don't really think about heaven much, that's okay. That's okay. God will do his good work. God will provide what you need. The Bible says that God gives us grace to get through every day. His mercy is new every morning. And so you may not see the benefits. You may not understand why or how until the new creation. But God will sustain you and give you the grace you need to keep walking with him. So to put together, trials are something that we will endure. Because we're following Jesus, the suffering servant. We won't be called to suffer like Abraham was, but we will take up our cross daily. But those trials are never, ever wasted. But to come back to the beating heart of this passage, which is that this is a passage all about God providing for us. And I think when we start to see it from this perspective, it starts to shift our thinking a little bit. All of a sudden, maybe we're not so caught up in being outraged at God. 
But maybe, just maybe, we begin to be outraged for him. Maybe, just maybe, we begin to see the pain and the suffering that he had to endure for us. And maybe that outrage, that horror, that anger, it it starts to shift and mould and become something more akin to love. Because as you look at this story, you're reminded of the extent that God the Father and God the Son would go to for you. And that, my friends, should help us begin to make a journey from outrage to adoration for what he was willing to do for us. I remember hearing uh, a few years ago about a Sunday school teacher teaching this passage to a bunch of little kids. And as he started to tell the story, there was a little girl in the front row. And uh, he got a few minutes into his talk as he worked his way through the passage, and the little girl, she whispered under her breath, it's Jesus. And then he kept telling the story. He kept going through the different elements, the different bits, the different pieces. And she just kept saying under her breath, but louder and louder, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And by the end of the story, she was on her feet. She declared with this gleeful delight, it's Jesus. As we read this story, we should get to the end and think, it's Jesus. He's the one who provides what we truly need. And to him, I will follow for all of my life. Amen.